Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. This week we start a brand new series, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Esther. And Esther is really interesting because you'll find out why. A lot of churches, you'll never hear the book of Esther preached. Uh, you'll never hear it taught. Uh, there's, some, there's some issues with the book of Esther that are challenging. Uh, I will give you this as a disclaimer, just so you know this. It's almost kind of a PG-13 type of, of, of uh, passage and topic. And, and, I, and I just want to be sensitive to this. Uh, I just want to be very sensitive to this. In particular, if you're a woman who's been abused uh, in any way, if you're a woman who's been violated in any way, I want you to know ahead of time it'll be a difficult passage. There might be parts of it that are difficult to talk about. And so I want to be very sensitive to that. And if you just say right from the get-go, you just say, ooh, that's going to be tough for me. I don't, I'm not sure I'm ready to deal with that. Hey, there, there's, there's, uh, there's grace. And so if when we pray, if you just say, maybe it's not the day for me, totally get that. But I just want you to be aware of that in advance. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We'll see who can find it. Right, the book of Esther. Book of Esther. And uh, when you get it, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. If you're new around here, you just need to know this. We don't up, down, up, down the whole morning. Uh, but we always stand when we read our primary text. And the reason is, it's a physical, it's simply this. It's simply a physical reminder for us. And it just reminds us, this is actually God who's speaking to us now. This is Esther. And I'm going to start in chapter 2. And I'm in verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5, the book of Esther says this. At that time... There was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair. And he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those who, along with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that you desire to reveal yourself. You desire to speak. You, you want us to know about you. And so I'm praying, God, that we'll see you and we'll see you clearly. And we'll learn more about you and, and um, who our Heavenly Father is. God would reveal to us as you want us to know this morning. And the Holy Spirit, we're asking, would you come and teach? You're the teacher this morning, Spirit. So speak to us. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Open our minds in a way that draws us directly to the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, interesting. Just let me ask you this. How many of you, by raise of hands, how many of you say, I remember my first car? Remember your first car? Remember your first car? All right, people remember their first car. Your car was nothing. Nothing. Here it was, first car, oh yeah, 1972 Volkswagen Squareback, it was awesome, about, about 1986, I bought this car, and you, I know sometimes you look and you go, that doesn't really look like much, the challenge is, you, what you cannot see from this picture is that the driver's door is orange, it was beautiful. And so I was so jacked up when I bought that car. I was just so jacked. First car, and I just finished my fourth year of college. I was on the stay as long as you can plan. And so I was still going back to school. 
And uh, man, this car was awesome. I was so excited because I had a car and I thought it was so cool, man. It's this Volkswagen, you know. And so I had this car about, I don't know, I probably had it a week. And uh, whatever I paid for it, I paid too much. But I'd had the car about a week and I went out to start the car and it wouldn't start. I was like, well, that's not good. Okay, I don't know a lot about cars, but it doesn't start. That's not a good sign. And so I got some buddies to come over, and they gave me a jump, and then I drove it. And I'm like, yeah, maybe the battery was just low. It just needs to be charged up a little bit. But about two days later, I went out to start my car again, and it wouldn't start. And I was totally bummed. And so because I totally know about cars, uh, I knew that if your car's not running right just because it won't start, one of the best things you can do is take a long road trip and start your trip at night. I thought that's a really good plan. And I just thought, I'll drive this car, and it'll charge it up. You know, my father, I grew up in Des Moines, so my father still lives there. So I'm, I'm going to go see Pop, right? And so I jump into the car, and it's about 8 o'clock at night. I'm like, yeah, this makes total sense to me. I'm doing the right thing here. And so I start driving, and uh, I went to school at the University of Northwestern, so we were in Roseville, you know. And so I start driving across town, and I get to about Burnsville, and the car dies. I was like, well, that's weird, because I'm driving it. It should be charging the battery up. That's really weird. And so I get the car kind of pulled over, and a guy pulls over after a while, and he gives me a jump. All right, so I get the car started, and I'm like, yeah, this might not go real well. And so I'm going to pull off the road, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if, if uh, you know, I'll call my father, tell him I'm not coming. So I pull off the, up the road, and I go to start my car again after I call my father, because we didn't have no cell phones. Remember that? There were no... There was a day... <laughs> I don't know how to explain this to you people, right? <laughs> there was a day. And so we didn't have no cell phone, right? So I, so I pulled in the station. I called my father. I said, hey, Pop, uh, I don't think I'm going to make it down, but, you know, whatever. And so I go get to back in my car. My car won't start again. And so I, I'm thinking, maybe it's not just the battery. I don't know what it is. So I call a couple buddies, and uh, they come out to Burnsville, and they give me a jump. And they said, you know, I, I said, I'm going to go back. They said, well, we'll just follow you. And so I drive for a while. And then the car would die. And we're right there on 35 now coming through the city. So I don't know if you know this about Volkswagens, and maybe you had a Volkswagen, but the battery is under the back seat. It's under, it's under the back seat. That's where the battery is. So we flip the seat up, you know, we put the cables on, and we jump it. And my one buddy says, look, man, this might happen again. I'll just ride with you. So we literally leave the cables on it. He holds them in the front seat like this. He's, he's just holding them there so they don't touch, right? And we're driving back. And every once in a while, the car would just die. So not a problem. We pull over. Hey, he puts it on their car. You know, they charge it. And then I'm thinking, because I know a whole lot, he said, hey, I think it's your alternator. I think that's why the battery doesn't hold a charge. And then, you know, make sure you don't have your radio on because that's just going to drain the battery further. And so I thought, well, it's 9 o'clock at night. What the bad thing could happen? The headlights are only going to drain it more. So I make sure I drive without the headlights. So at one point, I pull in between two big semis because I don't want to slow down. I want to drive fast so if it goes out, I can coast. And I pull right in them, no, no headlights. All the way back, all the way back to home, the car just kept dying. We had to stop and charge the car about four times from Burnsville to Roseville, right? And it was weird because it started out, I was so excited. Like a week and a half ago, I was crazy excited because I had this awesome I thought it was awesome. This awesome car, and now it's like, oh, it just, right? It, isn't, that, isn't that like life sometimes? Isn't life like that sometimes where you're like, man, this is awesome. My life is good. My life is good. And then something bad happens, and then crazy, like something worse happens, 
and life can get worse, and life can get worse, and life can get worse. And one of the things that we start doing is we start to have these existential thoughts. We start to think about God, and we start to ask questions. Is there a God? Does God care? And one of the questions that we ask is this goes on and on is, is there God? And if so, what is God doing when my life stinks and he's nowhere to be found? Like, that's a legitimate question. That's a real-life question. And I think if you haven't wrestled with that, you eventually will. I think most of us have wrestled with that. Where's God? What is God doing? I can't see God. I can't hear God. I can't sense God. I thought there was a God. Does he know about this? Is he there? Does he care? Where is God when I can't see him, when I can't feel him, when I don't, I don't have a sense for what's going on? Doesn't God know about me? And some of you might be there today. I'm praying that you're here. I'm praying that those of you who are here who are just saying, where is God? What is God up to? Can't God feel my pain? I thought he was the all-knowing God. I thought he was the all-powerful God. I thought he was the God who really loved me, really cared about me. Right. What do we do in situations like that? Welcome to the book of Esther. And, and Esther is going to address a lot of this. And we'll be talking about this week after week after week. We're calling the series Invisible. It's about the invisible God. And where is he in those times of our life? Now, let me give you a little background because I want you to have a little bit of an understanding for the book of Esther before we get into it too far. First of all, you need to know in, in, in your Bible, you have three books in a row, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. They talk about the Babylonian captivity. And so let me just give you a quick flash of history. We always say that the nation of Israel is this giant, you think of it like this, this giant oval. And at one point in time, even though it's all the nation of Israel, they were really divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which was called still Israel. But you had the southern kingdom down around Jerusalem, down around the Dead Sea, down, down where the temple would have been. And that was known as Judah. And at one point in time, Judah, the, the southern kingdom, under King Jehoiakim, became very wicked. He was a very wicked, evil king, and they didn't follow God's laws. And so because of that, God allowed them to be overtaken by the Babylonians. It was their punishment. And they were taken out of the land to Babylon. And you would have read, if you've, if you've read books like the book of Daniel, and you read about Daniel, that was Babylonian captivity. That's what, that's what was going on. And so where we're at now is we're in the book of Esther, and we're reading about the nation of, of, of Israel, but it's the southern kingdom of Judah that is still in captivity. It's been about 100 years, but they're still in captivity. And so, just so you have a feel for this, the king was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon, who defeated Jehoiakim. He was the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar was, and then he took them back. Well, he was eventually defeated by King Cyrus of the Persian Empire. It was the Medo-Persian Empire. And so now that whole uh, empire, it's the largest empire in the world at that time. It's like 127 provinces. So you think Iran, and I think you, you think of Afghanistan, and you think of Iraq, and then you think even all the way down into northern Africa, and you would think Somalia, and you'd think Ethiopia. It was the largest kingdom at that time. It's King Cyrus. He was then overseen, uh, t uh, followed by Darius. And then Darius was followed by King Xerxes. King Xerxes is king when the book of Esther takes place. Now, some of you, just so you know this, so it's not confusing to you, you'll have a different translation of the Bible. It's, it's maybe the New International Version. It's the New King James. And it'll, it'll list King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus is King Xerxes. It's the same thing. It's the Hebrew name. So if you read that, you go, well, King Ahasuerus, what, what about King Xerxes? Same thing, same thing, just so you know that. And so King Xerxes is the king now. And so the king throws a banquet 
for everybody. When you open this in chapter 1, he throws this huge banquet for all the nobles and all the officials in the entire empire. And he doesn't just throw a banquet. Are you ready for this? He throws a 180-day banquet. It's six, That's a banquet. It's six months' worth of banquet. He throws this banquet. And then, as if that's not enough, at the end of this time where he's throwing this banquet for the entire empire, then, because that's not enough, so he throws another seven-day banquet just for the people in Susa. You'll see that in your Bibles. You'll see the name Susa. Susa, think I ran. It's where the palace is. It's where the fortress is. Now he's just throwing a banquet for his nobles and his officials in the fortress in Susa where the palace is. He's throwing a big banquet just for them. Now, you're going to see what kind of king this is. He's very, he's very wishy-washy and he's very insecure. And so this is what the king says during this seven-day banquet. It says, by edict of the king at this banquet, no limits, none, zero, zip, zilda, nitschki, net, none, zero limits were placed on the drinking. For the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man, that's very important, as much as he wanted. How many of you think this is a good idea? How many think we're heading in a good direction? Not so great. This is only the men, it's all his nobles, it's all his officials in the fortress in Susa, and here's what he says. We're fixing to have seven days of getting liquored up and making bad decisions. That's about what this boils down to. That's, that's about what this, what's going to happen here. No limits. You serve everybody as much alcohol as they want. <clears throat> Do the math. Okay, at the exact same time, then we find out about Queen Vashti. It says at the same time, Queen Vashti, Xerxes is a king, Vashti is a queen. She gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes because the banquet that the king was throwing was only for men. Now, just remember this. It's very patriarchal culture. It's very patriarchal. Men are the masters of their domain. That's the way everything runs. So the queen is still having a banquet for her gals. Okay, here's where things get really weird. So imagine the scene, the king's banquet. It's all men. They've all been drinking hard for seven days nonstop. Got it. And now the king says this. He says to one of his eunuchs, eunuchs uh, were, were male officials who had been intentionally castrated, so they would produce no testosterone, right? And they're serving the king, and oftentimes they'll serve around the king's harem so that they have no interest in women. And so he sends one of these eunuchs over to Queen Vashti's party with an edict from the king which says this. The king, Queen Vashti, wants you right now to come over to his banquet, the one where all the men are licking up because they've been drinking all this alcohol. He wants you to come over there, and he wants you to prance and dance in front of all the men wearing your crown. Now, the rabbis will all tell you this, that the reason it says wearing her crown, because what it really meant was wearing only your crown. That's what the king wants. The king is saying to Queen Vashti, hey, you come on over here to my banquet, and you entertain all the men as you just dance naked with your crown on before all the men. Well, Queen Vashti is a little smarter than that, and she's a very courageous woman, and Queen Vashti says no, and she actually refuses. And because she, Vashti refuses, Vashti also got removed. And so the king was so threatened by this. The king was so threatened by the fact that the queen would ever say no to him in any fashion that he immediately calls in all of his advisors. And these guys who know the law, they know the law, they're experts in the law. And he's like, you're not going to believe this. But my wife just said no to me. The queen just said no to me. And these guys way panicked. They weren't even worried that the king's wife had just said no to him. They were worried that now throughout the entire kingdom, 
a woman would say no to her husband. I mean, let's think about this for a minute. The king, you cannot have the king's wife saying, just do the math on this. You cannot have the lead pastor's wife say, you cannot have, you cannot have the queen say no. You can't have that. Because then what will happen throughout the kingdom is that a woman would say no to her husband. And they were all so threatened by this. So what do they do? The king says, what should we do? What should we do? What should we do? So all these wise men, they decide we're going to make an edict. And the edict will say this. First of all, Vashti's out. She's out. Done. She's no longer the queen. And from now on, a man has the say in his house, and the wife will do whatever he says. Look at this from, from chapter 1. He sent letters then to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and its own language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. I was waiting for Taylor to give me an amen. I was waiting for you, brother. I, that, that's a wise man right there. That man wants to sleep in his house. <laughs> I, was just, I was waiting for you. This is how, this is how insecure the king is. The king, the king is, just, so now this decree has been passed, and it's passed throughout the land. Okay, that wraps up chapter one for you. Now in chapter two, and I'm trying to catch up to speed, you just need to know this. That when you get to chapter 2, when you flip the page and you go to chapter 2, it is now four years later. It's actually four years. There's four years in between the end of chapter 2 and the, and the, the beginning of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 1. There's four years. And we'll see that later. You'll, you'll do the math and you'll see that. And so in those four years, King Xerxes has been off doing war. He's been off to Greece and he's had a couple of victories. But at the Battle of Salamis, he really got defeated big time. So he comes back back to the Persian Empire, he's back at Susa, he's licking his wounds, and now all of a sudden he says, oh, that's right, we don't have a queen. That's right, we don't have a queen. So now in chapter 2 you see this. So his personal attendants suggested, let's do this. Let's search the empire to find, are you ready for this? Beautiful young virgins to the king. Now, now listen, you, you, can, you can immerse yourself in the culture of, this is about 480 B.C., you, you can immerse yourself in that culture, and you can understand it's a very patriarchal culture. There's no way to, to sugarcoat this. This is sex trafficking. That's what's going on here. They are, they are rounding up beautiful young virgins from all over the empire to please the king. That's exactly what's going on here. And shocker, the king liked it. The king liked the plan, and the plan is this. We're going to round up all these beautiful young virgins. We're going to get them all. We're going to take care of them. We're going to, they're going to spend a year getting more beautiful for the king because their thought was the more beauty they have, that the more they please the king sexually because they're going to bring them in, and they'll spend a night sleeping with the king, and whoever pleases the king the most will be the next queen. That's the plan. That's what's going on here. Okay, now getting into the storyline. So now we get our characters introduced. It says, at that time, there was a Jewish, very important, circle that word, underline that word in your Bible. He's Jewish. This is a, this is a remnant of, from, that, that had been taken in captivity. He's still living there. There are still Jews in the Persian Empire. There's a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai. Mordecai is one of the stars of the book. 
And he was a son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. It's very important. He's Jewish. He's a Benjaminite in, in particular. And he was a descendant of Kish and Shemaiah. If I were you, I would circle the word Kish, the name Kish. I would underline that because in about two weeks we'll come back and you'll see why that's so crucial. But it is crucial, right? Further, it tells us this. It says his family had been among those who, along with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been, here it is, exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. He wouldn't have been a child. He wouldn't have been born yet. The, the captivity was over 100 years prior to this, maybe 120 years. But his family was that. Now, here's what's really interesting. There are still Jews living in the Persian Empire. The Jews were supposed to go home. Under King Cyrus, uh, we know that if you read the book of Ezra, Ezra had already gone back to build the temple. If you read the, read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah had gone back to build the wall. Jews were allowed to go back. Here's the deal. And this is very applicable to us because one of the values that we see in the book of Esther is how do we live in a completely post-Christian world? Like the world has never been more different from our Christian beliefs ever in, in American history. We're so far, the problem is we still don't stand out. I wonder why that is. Got it. You, you understand what I'm saying? Like how do we live in that kind of a world? How do they live in this kind of a world? Like that, that's part of what's going on here. But the, the, the problem is the Jews didn't want to go back because going back to Judah, even though God said, I want you back in my land, I want you back under my covenant, I want you under my blessings, some of them said, yeah, but life in Judah is hard right now, and we're really comfortable here the way it is here. Does that sound familiar? That's a little what's going on here is the people got so comfortable. And so he's there. But he's not there simply by himself. It goes on and it says, this man had, here we go, the star of the show, right? He had a very, this is crucial, a very beautiful and lovely young cousin. Her name is Hadassah. She's also known as Esther. Esther is the star of the book of Esther. And it's important. She's very young, but she's very beautiful, right? Now, here's two pennies worth about Esther. When her father and mother died, oh, Esther's mom and dad are both dead. They're dead. Mordecai adopted her into his own family and raised her as his own daughter. So real quick, I want you to start thinking immediately about Esther, and I want you to think about her mindset, and I want you to think about how she's feeling. First of all, my mom is dead. Second of all, my father is dead. Thirdly, we live as a captive people in a land that, that hates us, and you're going to find that out next week, the hatred that was for them. You talk about anti-Semitism. There was radical anti-Semitism in the Persian Empire. And if I'm Esther, I have to start thinking about this. Wait a minute. Because in our home, in our, in our family, they're, they're always talking about this God. Like, this God is oftentimes brought up. And we have these religious practices where we, we're honoring this God. Who is this God? And where is this God? And what was this God thinking when my mom died, and when my dad died? And what was this God thinking when I was uh, uh, living when, when our people were living in our land and we were invaded like wh what is this God thinking wh where is this God he seems to be absent does this God care about us is this God even there like what is this God thinking like you have to start thinking like Esther would potentially be thinking in a time like this and then it's, it goes on and it says this as a result of the king's decree remember the king decreed this so we're, we're going to have a new queen we're going to round up all these young virgins. Oh, as a result of that decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought. Notice this, was brought. The verb tense here is passive. She didn't wander there on her own. She wasn't looking for fame. She wasn't looking for, for any kind of favor. She was taken. 
She was abducted. I'm telling you, this is sex trafficking. And she was brought to the king's harem. That's where she's being placed. At the fortress of Susa. And she was placed in Haggai's care. Haggai is one of the eunuchs. But you need to understand this. Again, number one, my mom's dead. Number two, my dad's dead. Number three, my people live in a distant land where we have been uh, taken captive. Now she's being trafficked. And she's in the harem under the care of Haggai. She is being groomed. Do you understand what I'm saying? What is her mindset? Where is this God? What is this God doing? What is he thinking? This is the most interesting thing about the book of Esther. You'll find this in no other books of the Bible. The name of God is never mentioned. Not once. The name of God is never once mentioned in the book of Esther. No one prays. We don't read about any religious uh, activities that are going on. There's no reference to God. There's nothing. In fact, the rabbis weren't even sure. The original rabbis who way back weren't even sure that this should be a part of Jewish literature. They put in there primarily because of the Feast of Purim, which we'll find out what that is in a few weeks. It's, it's one of the biggest Jewish uh, holidays. It's one of the biggest Jewish festivals. What's really interesting is this, that what you read in your Bible in the book of Esther is the original Hebrew translation, right? We have the, the, the translation from the original Hebrew Bible. Now, you don't have to if you don't. Raise your hand if you grew up Catholic. If you grew up Catholic, you grew up Catholic, you practice Catholic. Yeah, so just so you know, I'm not one of those people who tries to divide Protestants and Catholics. Hey, Catholics are our brothers and sisters, okay? We, we agree on the major doctrines, so I'm not trying to divide. What I'm saying is this. The, the Catholic Bible is slightly different than our Bible. This is one of the differences. Because in your Bible, if you take your Bible home, if you have the New, New Living Translation, or the New International Version, or the King James Version, the New King James Version, the book of Esther is 10 chapters. It's 10 chapters. If you pick up a Catholic Bible, the book of Esther is 16 chapters. It's really interesting. You say, oh, did they, were the chapters just smaller and they moved the numbers? No. No, 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 it's an extended book. Here's the difference. In our book of Esther, there is no mention of God. It's the original, it's the translation of the original Hebrew Bible. The Catholic Bible uses the translation from what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the earliest Greek translation of the Hebrew text. It was in about the second century BC. And in theirs, it lays it all out. And it puts in the name of God. And it plugs in all the pieces for you. But the rabbis didn't believe that. The rabbis said no. This was written this way intentionally. God is trying to make a point. There's a reason. It's so glaringly obvious that the name of God is never mentioned that it's there to make a point. And so when a girl like Esther sits around and says, where is this God? Where is this God? In her head, she's got to be thinking that. She's got to be questioned, just like you've questioned it, just like I've questioned it before. My life is really difficult right now. My circumstances are really difficult right now. Where's God? Does God know about my situation? Does he care about my situation? And eventually, if you get down the road far enough, you say, hmm, is he even there? Is there even a God? Well, it progresses. It says this. Esther now was taken. Again, it's a passive form. She's taken. She's not looking for a seat of fame. She was abducted. She was taken. She was trafficked. And she's taken to King Xerxes of the royal palace in early winter of, seven, of the seventh year of his reign. Man, how, how do you not feel for this girl? Mom's dead. Dad's dead. People are living as captives in a land that is totally anti-Semitic. She's been trafficked. She's been groomed. And now she's taken to the king. They're groomed for a year. She's been there a year. And now she is 
taken to the king, and it says this, that he was so delighted with her. Yeah, the king had her. The king took her. The king raped her. She wasn't a willing participant. Now, how is she supposed to feel? And what is she supposed to think? And what's her future? And does God care? Where is God in all of this? Where is God? Well, here's what's really interesting. The text says he was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head, and he declares her the queen instead of Ashley. And it's the strangest thing because her life is all like this. It's just this steady trip down. It's just steady. It's steady. And the next thing you know, she's actually the queen. And she's going to live in favor. And she's in a position of power. And what you're going to see in a few weeks is exactly why she's there. And it's the most incredible story. And so what are we supposed to think about these kinds of situations? What, what are we supposed to think about that in our own situation when things are really difficult? What do we think? And God can't be found, and God doesn't hear me, and I'm not getting any sense of God. And so there are a couple things that we need to understand, a couple really big theological ideas that we need to just at least have a discussion of. The first one is this. We need to understand the providence of God. What does it mean when we say the providence of God? What, what do we think of when we say the providence of God? And the first thing you, know, you need to know is that providence of God really talks about God's invisible hand. The fact that God is always at work behind the scenes. That you can't see it, I can't see it, you can't hear it, I can't hear it, you don't feel it, maybe I don't feel it, maybe. But God is always at work behind the scenes. Another thing you understand about the, the providence of God is that God is good. That the providence of God des describes God's goodness. That God is a good God. And I know we use this verse out of context a lot of times when we say it to people and it's really hurtful at times. Romans 8. God causes all things to work together for the good, right? For the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. But God is always working all things together for good. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what kind of pain you're experiencing this morning. And it's very trite for me to just say, well, God causes, causes all things to work for good. I know that can feel very hurtful. But the reality is God is a providential God. He's invisible, working behind the scenes, and he's always working for good. And the last thing that providence speaks to is the inseparable love that God has for us, that it can't even be separated for us. And just because you're not experiencing it, you don't feel it, God is still for you. God still loves you. Now, if we're going to talk about providence, then there's another very large theological, because providence is a subset of a larger theological idea, which is the sovereignty of God. And when we say sovereignty, people, I say, what, what do you mean by God is sovereign? God is always in control. God is always in control. That's what sovereignty means. And I would guard you against saying God is always in control. Before you take off your shoe and throw it at the front, let me just, let me just talk to you about this for a minute. Because there's some large theological ideas that you need to understand before we say God is always in control. Because I would challenge that idea. I would challenge that idea. For this reason, you need to understand these things about sovereignty. Uh, we, we act like everything that happens happened because God wanted it to happen. That's how, that's how we see sovereignty. Well, you know, God's in control. And so we say we have well-meaning intentions, but we say things like, well, you know, everything has a reason. And we say that to people at really hurtful times. Man, my, my, I just lost my spouse. Well, you know, everything happens for a reason. I will knock you out. Don't say that to me. Like, that, that's not helping this idea that God is sovereign, he's in control of everything. And we think that means that everything that happens happened because God wanted it to happen. That's not really true. That's not actually true. 
Let me give you some, I mean, if you're going to say that, that everything happens for a reason, I would accept that if you're willing to acknowledge that one of the reasons that a lot of things happen is simply sin. Things happen because of sin. Because sin entered the world. Because sin entered the world, there's disease and there's death and there's dying. And people do evil things. Here's some sovereignty truths that you need to understand. Number one, I would just say this. You have a free will. God gave you a free will. And if you want to run out of here and you want to go sin and you want to do something heinous, you have free will. You choose to do that. Remember, this, this all happened back in the garden. God made man. He made woman. He made Adam and Eve. He put them, and he said, reign over the earth. Reign over everything that, were, that, that moves in the earth. God gave them dominion. Then, unfortunately, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and they sinned, and sin entered the world. Some of you experienced some, some terrible consequences because of someone else's sin. And then we say things like, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, the reason is that person chose sin. They wanted to sin, and God gave us free will. You need to understand that Satan is the God of this world, and that's harsh for people to hear sometimes. But listen, the Bible declares it. Listen to what John says in 1 John. This is not John the Baptist. This is John, the favorite disciple of Jesus. We know that we are children of God, and we know that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Satan is the God of this world, and sin is real, and terrible things happen, sometimes even to God's people. But the last sovereignty truth that you need to understand is this, that the God of this world is already defeated. He is defeated. Now, God hasn't judged him yet. God hasn't banished him into hell forever yet. But he's been defeated. God just hasn't enacted it yet. God is sovereign? Absolutely. Which means this. If you think of a king, a king is sovereign. Yes, a king that sits on the throne. Our God is a king. The sovereign king means this. He has all the might and he has every right. The king has all the might. Our God has all power, all power, all power. He is, he is working with us in that he's given us free will. And sometimes we get to choose sin. But our God also has the right. Our God has the right at any time because he's the sovereign, because he's the king. He has the right at any time to overrule it. But it's not God's way. And so then we go back to, well, let's remember the providence of God. That God's hand is always invisible. He's always at work. He's always at work behind the scenes. That God is a good God. That God desires good for you. God desires for you to prosper. That is what God wants for you. And you also have to remember this, that God's love is inseparable. You cannot be separated from the love of God, even when your circumstances are difficult, even when things are tough, even when you don't get it and you don't sense that God is there. Listen to what Paul said when Paul was talking in the book of Romans. He says, can anything, anything, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? That's a good question. That's a question you should ask. Can, can anything, is that possible? Is it possible that we could ever be separated from God's love? Well, Paul goes on to answer. He's going to ask you another question. Does it mean he no longer loves us? Is that what it means? If we have trouble, if we have trouble, does that mean God doesn't love us, that God doesn't care, that he's not there, that he's not present? Is that what it means? If we have trouble, or if we have calamity, or if we're persecuted, or if we're hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death, if any of those things happen, does that mean that God isn't good? 
doesn't mean that God doesn't care. That God's forgotten you, that he's abandoned you, that he's left you. Is that what it means? Paul goes on and he says, no, 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 absolutely not. Not only that, he says, despite all these things, all of them, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Paul continues, he says, and I'm convinced that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. You can't possibly be separated from God's love. He continues, he says, neither death nor life, not angels, not demons, not our fears for today, anybody? Fears for today, worries? They can't separate you from the love of God, anything. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. And he says, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think it's really common. I think it's really uh, understandable. I think it's really normal. I think you're really normal if you're having one of those seasons. And, you, you know, listen to me. We always say this. You're, you're either in a tough season, uh, you just came out of a tough season, or you're fixing to go into a tough season. It's one of the three. That's, that's just the cycle of life, isn't it? And so if you're not in one of those seasons right now, it's very likely that you'll face another one of those seasons. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you, you've been through a number of these cycles. And I think it's very natural for us to just go, man, God, where are you? Are, are you paying attention, God? Are you paying attention at all? Can you not see me? Can you not see my situation? And I would say this, man, our God is a good God. It's the providence of God that he's working behind the scenes. This is what he did for Esther. Esther's life was terrible, 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 terrible. Bam, she's the queen. Like, how, how silent do you think this time was when she was just in pain? It was just a time of great silence. She didn't hear God. She didn't see God. She couldn't sense God. That doesn't mean God's not there. You've never been abandoned. Whatever your situation is, whatever your situation is that you're going to go to in the future, just because you're a follower, here's one of the biggest myths. Once you give your life to Jesus and you become a Jesus disciple, that takes care of everything. That is the biggest lie of garbage. And some of you just know that because you've been following Jesus for a long time. And you've been through some stuff. And the reality is, you'll probably go through some more stuff. God is ever-present. God is ever-present. God is ever-present. God is there the whole time. So you know we always have a big so what at the end. This is the thought that I want you to leave with here this morning. And it's this, that God's invisible, his invisible hand is always working his providential plan. The workings of God that you don't see, that you don't sense, that you're not aware of. He's always working out his, his providential plan, his good plan, his good, pleasing, and perfect plan. Listen to me, God loves you. God will always love you. God wants what's best for you. And he's always working to bring that about. Even when we don't sense it. That's the kind of God we serve. That, that, that's our God at work. Like, what's going on in your life right now that's difficult? Yeah, here's the deal. God wants us best for you. He wants us best. And so maybe it's not you. Maybe it's someone you know, and maybe you can encourage them with that. And they need to feel God's presence, and they might feel that through you. You might be the one who brings that to them. And maybe it is you this morning. Maybe you're frustrated and you're discouraged. And maybe this is one of those Sundays and we get people here every week who say, this is it and I'm done. This is my last service. 
and I'm never going back because I'm done with God because God doesn't listen to me. He doesn't hear me. He doesn't do anything about my pain. He doesn't do anything about my circumstances. He's forgotten me and he's abandoned me. And so I'm walking out and this will be it for me. And I'm saying if that's you this morning, man, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. This is when by faith we just leave in. This is when by faith we believe that God is a providential God. This is when by faith we believe that God is good. Because you don't feel it. You don't sense it. You have to believe it by faith. That's the kind of declaration that we make at times like this. That our God is good. That our God is always good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, that you are good. Thank you, God, for your, your desires for us, God that you want what's good and pleasing and perfect, that your plan is perfect, God, your desires for your children. Father, I'm praying right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit that would you allow people to just sense your love for them, that you are near, that even though you feel very far away, God, for some people, I'm praying that you would reveal yourself as the God who is near, the God who never abandons, the God who is always working out his plan. And with that, Lord, we look with great anticipation. God, what are you doing right now? And what can we expect in the future? Because we know you desire good. We know that you're a God who causes us to prosper. And so God, would you build faith this morning? Would you build faith this morning? Would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us? Would you reveal yourself to the people who need most desperately to sense that right now, God? Would you allow them to sense your presence?